Can you hear me okay? Yep, excellent, thank you. Um, well, good morning, everybody. All righty. Uh, first things first, um, no, I'm not all of a sudden the world's biggest Astros fan. fans. Um, I actually, last week, well, let me go back. 20 years ago, um, I was sitting down at the aquarium downtown in a, uh, uh, you know, their dining area, and evidently there was a wall behind me that I didn't see, and it was made out of concrete, and I hit my head on it. And uh, from that time forward, like I said, that was 20 years ago, um, a, a bump started growing in my head and got bigger and bigger and bigger. So anyway, so finally last week I decided, you know what, I, I want to get this thing taken care of. So uh, I went to the a dermatologist, they took care of it, but now I've got a big shaved spot on the back of my head with a bunch of stitches. And um, so I, I just, I don't know, kind of self-conscious about it. So when I turn around and stuff, I feel like you guys are going to be staring at it. Um, so it's either uh, an Astros hat or a yarmulke. So I wasn't sure, sure which way to. <laughs> I brought the yarmulke just in case, you know. Uh, so anyway, but, you know, I, I get it that we're, you know, we're in, we're in church. We're in, in, you know, the Lord's house. Um, and so if there's anybody that, you know, stumbles over me wearing a, a hat or if, you know, if, um, I, I don't know, you think it's disrespectful or something, just, just raise your hand, let me know. And it's no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll take it off. Um, I don't want to, you know, cause anybody to stumble or anything. Um, but trust me, it's not, uh, you know, I won't be doing that in worship service. Um, I'll actually be sitting back in the sound booth so there, there's nobody behind me. But um, so anyway, uh, so just to get that out of the way. So no, I'm not the world's biggest Astros fan all of a sudden. Um, all right. So with the class, um, as you can see, theology class, this is about the seventh month we're starting. We actually started this thing way back in uh, June of last year. And, you know, we've gone through a lot of topics and stuff. And so I kind of anticipate another, I don't know, four or five months, however long the, the elders are cool with, with us continuing. Um, I think Stuart can use the, use the break. He's been kind of doing the heavy lifting in terms of Sunday school for a long time. So, um, so anyway, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I hope you, you have as well. Um, but it has been six months. And so what I wanted to do today, I see some fairly new faces. And of course, you know, it seems like most of the, the normal folks are, are, are out today. Um, but what I wanted to do is step back and do kind of a review of what we talked about in the real early days. Um, the early days being, you know, June, July of, of uh, 2023, right? And so... Um, you know, it's very close to, I think it was the first or second, you know, class that I did and, uh, you know, with some revisions. Um, so some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff may sound familiar, um, but at the same time, there's kind of a new spin on, on a handful of things. And especially for the new folks, I think that that's, that's going to be appropriate, right? So lots of questions today. I hope you're in the mood to, mood to talk. Um, even if you're not, please, please do. And, um, and new, new folks, feel free to, to, to speak up, you know. Um, I, I really, I think we all grow together, um, the more of us that participate in the discussion, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. So Father, once again, thank you for a new year. Uh, thank you for a new day. Uh, thank you for just the blessing of being able to be here and to, uh, to study, um, you, to study about you, uh, to get to know you just a little bit better, and to get to know one another just a little bit better. Father, um, we ask that everything uh, that is said in this class um, be profitable in some way um, for knowing you, and that you and you alone are, are glorified. Uh, we love you. We trust you. Help us glorify you in everything that we think and say and do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, so, what is theology? Study of God. Study of God. Great. Okay. 
um, comes from two Greek words, right? Theos, God, and ology, which means a lot of stuff, right? It's kind of logos, actually. Um, uh, means a lot of stuff, but one of the things it means when it's translated over into English is the science of, or the study of, or the knowledge of, you know, kind of, kind of that sort of thing. So you're right. It's the, it's the, it's the study of God. Um, so to put it in context, have y'all ever heard of theology being referred to as the queen of the sciences? Who's heard, heard that before? Yeah, handful? Okay, cool. So what does that mean for theology to be the queen of the sciences? Okay, you're my go-to guy today. Okay. Uh, systems that he's put in place, it allowed science and all that to really flourish. Okay. Because of this foundational understanding of the, uh, really the particular nature of God. Okay. So the nature of God and God being our creator yes. and the fact that he's... Much better said. <laughs> well, you're very, very close, right? And, and yours was on the fly. Okay. So God is our creator created the world and everything in it, including us. And so it stands to reason that really anything substantial at all needs to be understood in relation to him. You know, that includes physics, includes chemistry, that includes study of the mind or psychology, you know, that includes anything, um, ethics, clearly, you know. Um, You can go across the board and anything substantial that we're going to Uh, learn, study, understand, needs to be understood in the context of the triune creator God um, of the universe, right? So, um, let's say, because God created the world and everything in it, including us, makes sense that all of life's most important questions are, at their core, theological, okay? And so, the idea of theology being the queen of the sciences is if you go back to kind of the the medieval... um, medieval times, they, uh, they studied all the various things, right? Whether it was, um, you know, th- their version, a precursor of physics, or it was nature, or it was philosophy, philosophy um, East Texas is going there, um, philosophy, or it was English, or whatever, literature, I should say, not, not English, right? Um, everything was understood in the context of theology, and so theology was considered the queen of all of understanding and all of knowledge. Okay, so that's what that idea means, that theology is the queen of the sciences. And so um, this gets into the idea of a, a worldview. So who, who can tell me what a worldview is? What kind of questions does, a world, does your worldview answer? Right, it, meaning of life. Okay, good. Meaning of life. Uh, is there a God? Uh, who who is man? Uh, not only is there a God, um, what is the nature of God? Um, what is the nature of man or mankind? Um, ethics. You know, is it you know what constitutes right and wrong and value and things of that nature? So your worldview is kind of how you answer the big questions of life how you understand the world to actually operate, okay? And so um, Christianity is a worldview. It is not simply a religion, okay? And that's something that is critical to understanding um, who we are and understanding the Bible and understanding Christ and being in Christ is we have to understand that theology is, um, or Christianity is not simply a religion, it is a worldview, okay? The way I think about it, there's a, one of my favorite podcasts is called um, the Theology Pug Cast, you know, P-U-G, like the, like the, um, the dog. And these guys are um, philosophers, um, I'm sorry, they used to be philosophy. they're retired philosophy professors, history professors, that sort of thing. 
and they, they talk through various topics. And one of the, the analogies that they use is we often think of, of Christianity, our religion, as being like the book on a shelf. And so, okay, here's my, here's my religion. And then next to it might be, okay, philosophy. And next to that might be, I don't know, economics, ethics, you know, the, the different areas of our, of our world, um, you know, science, et cetera, and so forth. They said, but Christianity is not a book on a shelf. Christianity is the bookshelf. Everything else fits into that. And so it encompasses everything. And so the point there is, is Christianity is not something for just for, and I think you all know this, but Christianity is not just simply something for Sunday morning, you know, where we come in, we pay our dues, and then, you know, we go to Luby's or, or something afterwards, and then we continue on with the rest of our life the rest of the week. No, it's something that um, our, our being in Christ is something that it, 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 it is the meaning of our life, Okay. So, any questions so far? No? Okay. So, how are theological doctrines similar to scientific laws? Right? Now, I'm kind of looking for a specific answer here, so I'll go ahead and, and throw this one out there. Um, but it's just a way of understanding theology, right? Um, so, with theological doctrines, as well as scientific laws, both are observations based on underlying data. So what do I mean by that? If you think about a chemist, uh, a chemist is going to take different chemicals, um, different you know, elements or whatever, mix them up, maybe apply some heat, make an observation about what happens, right? And then after a series of these experiments, they begin to formulate laws that explain how, um, how chemistry works. So you have the idea of acids and bases and salts and, you know, different things like that. Um, theology is very similar, except we don't conduct experiments in the laboratory with Bunsen burners and things of that nature. What we do is we look at the Bible. The Bible is our source of data. I don't, like, it feels kind of yucky referring to the Bible as data, but in, the, in this case, that's kind of, kind of what it is, Right. So what we do is we make observations that we find in the text of Scripture. And then we, we kind of connect the dots, so to speak, to make theological observations about, about what the Bible says. Then we go back and we check to make sure that those theological observations are, are correct by maybe using other texts. Does that make, does that make sense? And so the idea is um, both theological doctrines and scientific laws are or observations um, based on some underlying observation, right? Observations based on um, underlying text. In both cases, both theological doctrines, scientific laws, um, both are discovered, they're not invented, right? So the last thing you want to be is a creative theologian, right? Just like the last thing you want to be is a, a creative accountant. Because if you're a creative accountant, you end up like Enron. Remember Enron? Some of you guys are probably too young for that, right? But you don't want creative accountants and you don't want creative theologians, okay? You want, your, um, want those folks um, to be, uh, you know, discerning and just explain things as they are, as they see them. Call them as they see them. I guess you, you, could, you could say that way. But so the, the bottom line is, regardless of the doctrine, if it's, if it's a divine doctrine, then it's not invented by man, it is discovered, right? It is something God has given us, and not only discovered, but he has revealed it to us um, to be discovered. So uh, neither are a matter of preference or opinion, okay? Um, as I don't know how you feel about Ben Shapiro, but he says, you know, your feelings don't matter, or something of that nature. And that's kind of the way it is in theology, right? Honestly, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There are some things that bother me, you know? Now, if there's anything about God that bothers me, well, that's a sinful attitude. But if I'm honest, there are some things that he's done that I look at and I go, I don't understand this. 
But you know what? God's God and I'm not, you know. Um, God's God and you're not. And so um, when we look at a, uh, a doctrine, we have to understand, is it true? If it's true, then it's divine, you know. And it's, um, if it comes from God, then it's good, okay? And if we struggle with his doctrines, if we struggle, or his acts, or the things that he says or does or anything like that, then it is our misunderstanding and our own error uh, and sin that, that is in the way, okay? And as we um, learn, as the Spirit works in our hearts, works on our minds, and as we work through text, we begin to understand him better. And so, um, and we grow closer to him. And then as we grow closer to him, we, we trust him more. And so, when we, even when we hear something that we don't necessarily, I'll say, like <laughs> on the surface level, as we understand him, we trust him. And that's what gets you through, that's what carries us through those rough times. Are theological doctrines infallible? I'll open that one up to a question. Scripture is infallible. That's right. True ones are. But, you know, how do you discern the true theological doctrines, right? Because you have these, these sometimes you have competing uh, doctrines where um, Christ-loving people can hold to, to opposing doctrines, right? And the idea there is, is at least one of them is wrong. If they oppose one another, at least one of them is wrong. Maybe both, you know, one or the other, but, but, but maybe both. And so that's something that we have to bear in mind is that theological doctrines, we strive for truth. But, you know, we, we have to always be ready to, to check, check them. Right, and if we hear something um, that changes, that I'm sorry, if we if we come to understand something scripturally that opposes something or contradicts something that we believe, it doesn't matter how much we love that love it or how much how long we've believed it, it needs to go away. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, sir. There's also the, the aspect of major versus minor yes. right. doctrines, which the majors we mm-hmm. need to stand firm on, right. but there can be, be minor things mm-hmm. that we don't fully understand. Like, right. I mean, on, on our elder board, we have differing views on, on eschatology. Mm-hmm. Yep. A- absolutely. Um, so... And that brings up a great question, one that I wasn't really to get into, so thank you, Stuart. Um, but, you know, we have to think through what, what doctrines are worth splitting over. Or I shouldn't say splitting over, dividing over. You know, which ones are worth dividing over? The Trinity is worth dividing over, the deity of Christ. Um, salvation by grace through faith. These are things that, that, you know, at some point we have to be willing to, to divide over. You look in on Galatians, and Paul um, is dealing with um, Paul is dealing with uh, you know Judaizers coming in and flipping around the uh, let's kind of go through what what Paul was dealing with in the early part of Galatians he uh, the idea is that kind of the order was um, you believe in Christ and you follow the law you let's say follow the law I mean you live a God-fearing life, right, that is um, in accordance with the gospel, okay? You try to glorify God in your actions and, you know, that sort of thing, right? But what they did, uh, what the Judaizers were doing was flipping it around. They were saying that you, you follow the law and then, and then you're saved, okay? And that was something that um, Paul was ready to divide over. As a matter of fact, he said, let them be what? Anathema. Okay? He said, don't have anything to do with these people because they're corrupting the gospel. So when we're dealing with gospel issues, you know, that sort of thing is, is worth dividing. If anything in the world is worth dividing over, it would be something like that. Okay? Now, you know, 
baptism, eschatology, things of that nature, those are important doctrines. But are they worth, should we divide over them? And on the elder board, we believe that no, they're, they're, no we should not divide over them. It's not that they're not important, but it's that we, we have one gospel, and then there's certain peripheral sort of ideas that, that we have the liberty to, to disagree on. And then we, we interact and we talk about these things and try to come to a, you know, a common understanding. Everybody cool with that? Yeah? Okay. All right. So I, I, I like A.W. Tozer. I don't know if you all are familiar with him. Um, he, he misses sometimes, but he is a brilliant or was a brilliant writer. And so I, I, he's very, very quote, quotable, right? So he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. When, when I read that, actually, I think there's one, yeah. We tend by secret law uh, of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So what I tend to think about is our idea of God is, is like our, our compass. And, you know, we're, we're trying to move toward God. So he's, let's say he's that way, okay? Well, we're going to be headed that way, and we're going to fall off into ditches and run into barriers and get off the trail from time to time. But hopefully we're coming back onto the trail and we're working our way kind of that direction, right? And so, you know, what he's saying here is if this is our, our compass, but, you know, we see, you know, and his, his idea here is we see somebody kind of headed that way, well, or, or that way, um, then... It's not the individual little acts that, that happen, that, that occur, the, the individual sins and mistakes and, and you know, indiscretions that people make. It's kind of the sum total of those things. And those things tend to be driven. The overall um, life, the sum total of our life, tends to be uh, related to what we believe about God. And so if we believe God is, you know, um, a geriatric um, or a, a grandfather, you know, sitting on his front porch just wanting his children to come visit him every Sunday morning, and so he's excited to just give them ice cream money, you know, that sort of thing. If we look at God in that way, which a lot of people do, then you're going to live your life in that way, and you're going to think of God um, as less than he is. By the same token, some people see God as, um, as a totalitarian sort of dictator um, and strip away the love. They kind of fall off on, on the other side. And their lives and, um, tend to reflect um, that, that belief. Does that make sense? No? Okay. A.W. Dozer, there we go. All right, so I'm going to throw some terms out here. Um, the idea here is not to learn a bunch of five-syllable words, okay? The idea here is I want to throw some the words, and the most important thing is, is the ideas behind the words, okay? So if tomorrow you don't remember what hermeneutics is, that's okay. Um, just, you know, trying to familiarize you with, with some, of the, um, uh, some of the ideas, really is what it boils down to, because we build up, right? So we build up from, from hermeneutics. Can somebody tell me what hermeneutics is? This is where I need Stephen Curdo, because uh, Stephen actually teaches um, hermeneutics at, at a Christian school. So hermeneutics. Okay, it's the principle of biblical interpretation. Okay? So when we interpret the Bible, you know, we don't just sit down, read it, um, ask ourselves, what does this mean to me, and then move on. There's actually, um, you know, some 
some principles that we want to uh, that we want to guide us in interpreting the Bible. Now we're not going to go into those right now, but a lot of times it deals with understanding what genre um, we're, we're talking about. Okay, so if Jesus tells a a parable, we don't need to understand that parable as a historical narrative, you know, but at the same time, if we're reading a historical narrative, we don't, we don't want to interpret that as poetry, okay? Does that make sense? So we need to be familiar with what it is that we're, um, the genre of what it is that we're reading, because a lot of times you're going to interpret poetry and narrative differently. Okay, does that make sense? Or poetry and prose. Exegesis. Somebody tell me what exegesis is. Expounding an exposition of the scripture. That's really close. Literally, it means to lead out of. Okay, and so it's discovering the intended meaning of a text. So the key idea here is that we're receiving the meaning of the text. We're receiving the meaning from the text. Okay? So, you know, a lot of you may be going, well, obviously, okay? But there's also something called eisegesis. So what do you think that means? Putting your own language. There you go. Reading the meaning into the text. Exactly. It's the interpretation of a text as of the... um, as of the Bible, by reading into it one's own ideas, okay? Um, This happens way more than you would think. And let's see. So why is it a bad practice? Right. You, You lose the intent of the text, the authorial intent, right? Absolutely. And so what happens is if you are, um, let's say Mallory and I read, read, read a text, and then we begin to talk about this text, if she's reading into it and I'm reading into it, well, we can come away with two opposing ideas about what that text is about, right? Well, which one is right? Now, obviously Mallory, but um, which one is right? <laughs> Neither, okay? It, because the idea is, again, see, well, I'll ask one more question. Have you ever witnessed eisegesis in action, or have you done it yourself? Yeah? Do you want to share? Do you have a particular idea that you want, or story? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to prophecy, it's, it's really easy to do that. Yep, 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 yep. Different lenses that, that you put on in order, order to um, to view the scripture. I uh, I guess we don't really need to go into specific examples, but there's a plethora of of scriptures out there that are taken out of context and then um, and then applied in situations where they don't need to be applied. Uh, yes, sir. Another example of that is is taking your personal experience mm-hmm. and placing that ahead of scripture. Yeah, right. To say, well, based on my experience, this is how this should be interpreted. Right. And that's getting into creative theology that yeah. you talked about. Yeah, a- absolutely. When we take our experiences and based on our experience, this must be what it what it means, as opposed to really trying to understand what the author meant, um, then, yeah, we run into creative theology, which is a bad thing. Uh, so would you expect eisegesis to be more or less prevalent in today's culture? More. Way more. Way more. Way more. Okay. There's this idea of objective truth 
truth being that which corresponds to reality, okay, one reality, uh, universal reality, um, it's, it's a shame that you even need to qualify what reality is, right? Reality should be reality. Um, but I've read all kinds of stuff in the last 10 or 15 years that talks about creating your own reality, you know, and reality being a matter of perspective and things of that. No. Um, reality is reality. Truth is truth, okay? Now, you may have, you may believe something, but just because you believe something earnestly doesn't make it true, okay? So we have this whole thing going on these days with, um, I'll bring up transgenderism, right? People deciding that they want to they wanna flip, I don't know, should I say teams? <laughs> they want to they wanna flip genders, okay? No, it, it doesn't matter what you do to yourself, what surgeries you undergo, what, what hormones you take, or what you decide that you want to be. You are born with a certain arrangement of chromosomes, and that dictates whether or not you're this or that, okay? Um, and that's pretty much, that, that's the end of the story right there. Um, but folks have said, no, I want to bend reality to, to my own preferences, to what it is that I desire. And that's one of the things that we're running into more and more is that um, it's almost like reality, reality is blown up and each person is putting it together with their own fragments that they have. And so we all end up with all these different ideas and realities and stuff. And that's, that, that's just, it's shameful. It, it really is. Okay, now, to balance that, we have to check ourselves as well, right? When it comes to, you know, what ideas do we bring to the Bible? I'll give you a very, very small example here. So do we greet one another with a holy kiss? Because when I look at how often Paul talks about it specifically, it does not look like an option to me. Those are, all those sentences are imperative. That means they are commands. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, do we do that? No. Why not? Are we being disobedient? Well, I would say that would be more cultural. It's a cultural thing. Okay. That part of the world is much more common okay. than we usually see it today. Okay. Okay. I agree. And by the way, and that's good, and I agree with you. As we go forward, we don't want to try to solve these problems, okay? But you answered the question good, very well. We don't want to try to settle these. I, all I'm doing is giving you something to think about, okay? So, do we wash one another's feet? No, why not? Again, it's more cultural. You wore sandals. Or yeah. The streets were probably not as clean. Definitely not as clean. You know, they were pretty funky. Things like that. Yeah. So, it would, again, be more of a cultural yeah. traditional type. So, the idea there, in the first case with the... the the holy kiss, it's this, it's like a jovial greeting, right? And so now we have the jovial side hug, right? Um, and then washing one another's feet was an act of humility in serving another person. And so, you know, we all, you know, we all wear shoes now. We don't walk around in, you know, raw sewage and, and that sort of thing. Um, so our, our feet, unless you're a teenager, are relatively clean, okay? Um, but, and the idea would be, if we we're going to translate that to today, might be scrubbing toilets or something of that nature, okay? It was a very lowly task. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's why when Jesus did that, you know, with his disciples there, um, it was mind-blowing to them, absolutely mind-blowing, Right? So why not? We talked about cultural stuff. But if it's cultural, is it okay for the Lord's Supper to be cookies and milk instead of bread and wine? Wouldn't that be more of a cultural norm today? And, and pick, your, pick your liquid and your, your form of carbs, right? But, you know, 
if it's cultural, why not go ahead and just say, okay, no more bread and wine. We're going to, you know, change what the elements are. Or if it's cultural, should we rethink our position on homosexuality? Uh, that's not cultural. That's not cultural. Well, culturally, it's becoming the norm. It's becoming very, very accepted. A front to God, okay. Creation and the sanctity of marriage okay. and man and his wife. Good. Union. Yep. It's uh, definitely not cultural. Good, good. Yes, ma'am. She's dying to say something. What's that? Well, you just have to go back direct to Jesus. That yes. About, right? Okay. So, I mean, those are conditions under which you had a certain set right. of understanding who the writer was writing to, right. what was the understanding. Versus homosexuality, you go back to right, Genesis right. and say, yeah. well, that's clearly not God's intention right, right. for the order. Good, good. Okay, good. Now, you guys are, are definitely going down the right track, okay? Um, some things we look at, they're going to be cultural. I think those first two examples are where we have some, some freedom to work within the spirit, not the word, kind of that sort of thing, right? Uh when it comes to the Lord's Supper, when it comes to homosexuality, that sort of thing, those are things that are not cultural. And, you know, I think um, Jenny and Stephen have given good reason, you know, basic reasons why one would be cultural and one would not. But what we have to do, what we have to be not only prepared to do as we are evangelizing and as we're discipling people, but also just in, for our own understanding, is if we're going to look at, at, at one text and treat it figuratively um, or literally and look at another text and treat it the opposite, what are the principles of why we're doing that? Okay, there needs, we have to have an understanding of why we would use, I'll say, one set of rules for one text and another set of rules for another text. So we need a cohesive view of what the Bible is. Otherwise, you know, especially if we're interacting with somebody, a skeptic, you know, they can point things out and say, hey, you know, um, you know you're being inconsistent. And so what we have to do is be, be ready. And again, it's, it's just for our own understanding um, to be able to d- discern between those two things. And for the record, on the bottom two, I want to be, Make it clear, no, we shouldn't use cookies and milk, and no, we don't need to change our view on homosexuality, okay? Yep. Okay, so there's one more term, uh, progressive revelation. Can somebody tell me what progressive revelation is? You guys are so quiet today. Yes, ma'am, Finally. either on this life or in the next, uh-huh. he's going to reveal more. Yeah. It's going to become more clear. Okay. Like what we, what's critical is clear, but not necessarily right. everything. Okay. That's good. That is exactly the right idea, but we just need to slide it back a little bit. And what I mean by that is there's things, there are ideas that God has revealed, I'll say early in Scripture, um, to say Moses you know, in the, um, or even before Moses, if we're, you know, talking Adam and Eve, that sort of thing, um, that where we get a um, very fuzzy picture, okay? And then over time, he reveals more and more clarity, okay? Reveals it with more and more clarity. So the teaching that God has revealed himself and his will through the scriptures um, with increasing clarity as more and more of the scriptures were written, Okay? Does this mean that later revelation corrected earlier revelation? No. Progressive revelation is not movement from error to truth, but from less complete to more complete, right? So I'll give you an example. If you'll remember back, I think it was in November, uh, Ken talked about, he did a little biblical theology, right? And he talked about the Messiah. And what is the first messianic passage in the Bible? 
Genesis 3.15. And it's the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, right? And so when you look at that, if you're Adam and Eve, you know, you may be looking at that going, oh, okay, you know. Um, there's some things that you can, you know, glean from that. But as time goes by and you get into um, uh, re- revealing more to, uh, uh, um, I almost said Joseph, uh, Israel, um, Jacob, <laughs> if I can remember his name, um, revealing more to, to you know, Jacob blessing his son Judah and saying the scepter will uh, remain in you know, the tribe of Judah and then going into numbers and talking about, you know, a, a star, um, a star shall rise, that sort of thing. And then as you get into 2 Samuel and you have David, um, the promises to David and the Davidic covenant. And as you're working through, and I didn't even mention Abraham, right? And as you're working through this idea, you have more and more revealed about who the Messiah is. And then ultimately, you have Jesus himself coming on the scene, you know, 2,000 years ago. And so it's a lot, what in the world is happening? Yeah, so can you tell what that is? What's that? Well, you've seen the slide before. Yeah. Cheater. <laughs> so if you look at this, if you, if you, if you didn't cheat and, and look ahead, which I don't know why it ran through all of that, um, then, you know, you wouldn't have any idea what that, what that was, Okay. Okay, my, that, what, oh, I see, okay. So then it's like, okay, as you work through the middle of the Bible, you have a little more detail, and as you get to the end, you have, you have Einstein, right? And now when you go back and you look at the beginning, you can't help but see it, okay? That's sort of the way um, that, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> That was sort of the way that progressive revelation works, right? Um, as you're, you're working through time, you're working through the Old and the New Testaments, um, things are becoming more and more clear. And then when you go back and you look in those early passages of, say, Genesis 3, you can't help but see it. And it's, it's really a thing of beauty. So what are the three different kinds of theology that we've, we've studied? Systematic theology is one. Biblical theology is one. Historical theology, good. Biblical, historical, and systematic theology. So let's first talk about biblical theology. Um, Biblical theology seeks to understand the progressive unfolding of God's special revelation through history. Progressive revelation, right? Biblical theology is, in essence, historical and chronological. For example, the concept of the Lord's temple through the Old and New Testaments. So what was the first temple? Sorry? In Sinai? Tabernacle. Okay. Now, the tabernacle, what was the tabernacle? Okay, so the first temple was in Jerusalem. Was in Jerusalem. Okay. Well, what's a temple? Okay, so if what, what is a temple, it's a place where God's presence is especially manifested, right? So what was the first place where God's presence was especially? The Garden of Eden. Garden. The Garden of Eden. Sharon, uh, Sharon tipped this off a little while ago, right? Good. It was in the garden, okay? Um, the language there has a lot of tempo, temple language. Uh, when it talks about the things that Adam was supposed to do, that's the same language that's used of the priests in the, in the temple. So we move from the temple, we move to uh, the tabernacle, and then we move to um, the, uh, the temple in, in Jerusalem, and then that was destroyed, and it was rebuilt, and it was beautified, right, in the second temple. Then that was destroyed, but where's the temple now? In us. In us. You and I are the temple of God, right? So it's where his presence especially, is especially manifested um, in, in the world. And so 
there is no building. You know, this building is not a temple. This building is, is a place where we come um, for the Lord's temples to meet, right? For a temple to meet. Um, the Messiah, we've already, we've already talked about that one. But so biblical theology follows these uh, motifs through the Bible. And there's, it's really, really fascinating reading that you learn so much, you know. Now, from a different, some other people use biblical theology in a little bit different way, right? From a different perspective, biblical theology is said to be the study of the distinctive treatment of themes and ideas in a particular book of the Bible or in those books written by a single human author, okay? So let's talk about faith for a minute. Think about when Paul wrote Romans, and you're reading Romans, so you have Paul, and then you have um, James, okay? What does... Paul say about faith. I'm sorry? Not saved by works. It's a saved by faith. It's a gift from God, right? What does James say about faith? Faith without works is what? Is dead. Now, on the surface, we can look at those two statements and think of them as antithetical to one another. Okay? But what you do is you go in and you look at Romans, you look at Paul, look at what he was doing, planting churches all over the Eastern Mediterranean, and understanding the, what, what he was trying, um, not what he was trying to say, what he was saying, um, what the Holy Spirit was leading him to, to write. And you have this idea of, you know, this is a, um, it's a letter that, has a lot of emphasis on being justified by, by grace through faith, okay? Look at James. James is a different circumstance. He was a pastor of a church. He was writing a, an epistle or a letter, and there was evidently some stuff going on. There was a misunderstanding of, of faith uh, or of the Christian life, I should say. And so the idea was that people were just kind of living... Um, Lives, how hedonistic lives, you know, what we call antinomial, antinomial, I can't say the word, lawless. Um, they were living lawless lives. Um, they were ignoring widows and orphans. They were, they were doing things. They were speaking ill of one another. And so what Paul, or I'm sorry, what, what James was saying is you're a Christian. You're representing Christ. You know, you're, you're his, you know, ambassador, so to speak, on, on earth. You know, you are his temple. You need to act like that, you know? It's not a matter of losing your salvation, but it's just, hey, you know, you need to get your, you know, get your act together and live a life that's glorifying to God. That's what James was saying. And so they're not contradicting one another. What they're doing is giving together, they're giving the whole truth, Okay. And so the cool part is, is understanding in studying biblical theology, you understand this piece, and, and then you understand this piece, and then the systematics that we're going to talk about in a minute, you bring those things together, and you have a more fully orbed understanding. Okay? Make sense? Cool. Yeah, okay. That was the example that I just went through. And then, um, and then Jesus... Another example would be if you look at the four gospel accounts, um, Jesus, they all work together. They're, they've been called, um, uh, compared to uh, four master painters painting four different portraits of, of Christ, right? So you have Matthew that's depicting Jesus as the Messiah, you know, the promised king. Um, Mark as... Um, portraying Jesus as the, the suffering servant. And then Luke, uh, the son of man, he was a Greek intellectual writing the Greek intellectuals. And he was, um, he was demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. He is, he is who, who we should be. And then the son of God um, is the way that John uh, depict, depicts Jesus. And now, all of them are true together, Okay. And it, I, I think it's, I can't imagine one work doing what these four together have done. It's just amazing. 
And then systematic theology is organized topically and seeks to present the entire scriptural teaching on a particular topic um, or doctrine one at a time. So what would be some to uh, topics of systematic theology? Trinity, or we'll call that theology proper. Okay. What's some, what are some other areas of theology that we would study? Soteriology. Soteriology, which is? Uh, salvation. Study of salvation, good. Ecclesiology, which is study of the church. Okay, so let's throw the. These are. This is not exhaustive, but these are kind of the classical ones, right? Um, angelology, demonology, and I'm going to throw the kind of the official names out there again. You don't have to remember those. Um, but angelology, demonology is what study of angels and demons. Anthropology, study of man. Study of man. Uh, bibliology. Study of the Bible. Now, some people won't say bibliology. They'll study, they'll say uh, prolegomena, which means first things. We could go either way on that. Christology. Study of Christ. Ecclesiology. It's study of the church. Eschatology. Study of the end times. Last things. Harmadiology. Sin. Very good. Chad gets an extra point for that one. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> okay. Uh, pneumatology. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Good. Uh, soteriology. Study of salvation. salvation. Theology proper. Study of, of God. Some people will say it's the study of God the Father, um, which is technically patrology, um, but the, theology proper is kind of the, uh, the overarching term. So that's where you study the attributes of God and um, the Trinity, things of that nature. So where do you most often see these categories expressed in local churches? And I should say on their websites. Statement of faith, Statement of faith yeah. Um, so this is where, you know, if you want to understand what a church believes and you get on the interwebs and you go to their, you know, their website and you pull up Statement of Faith and, and kind of go through it and you have a, an understanding of at least what they believe on paper, right? Uh, or at least in theory, I should say. So these categories are not marbles in a drawer. That's really important. What I mean by that is there was a, I was reading one guy, and I love the analogy. Um, he said, we often think of these different doctrines as being like marbles that are just like loosely rolling around in a drawer. And they don't have a whole lot to do with one another. Every once in a while, they collide, right? In reality, they are all tightly bound together, right? If you make an error in one, it propagates to the others. It really does. Um, and so, like, for example, ecclesiology and eschatology. Okay? You can't even really get started on eschatology until you, under, you, know, you understand something about ecclesiology. And specifically, what is the relationship of the church in Israel? Okay? Because there's so many questions with eschatology where the question is, okay, is this promise to the church or is this promise, the pro promise specifically to Israel, right? And then once you, you understand that, then you can go in and begin to interpret more the eschatology stuff. I remember brand new Christian. Um, I was in a Bible study. I'd probably been there, I don't know, a month or so. I remember it was at 59 Diner on I-10. Um, it's, it's closed now. Now it's at IHOP. And um, still going on, even after 20 years, right? And so uh, somebody said something about eschatology, and I didn't know what it was. And so after the study, these two guys were sitting down with me, and, and I remember one of them said, okay, premillennialism pre is this. He kind of you know, gave me a, I don't know, five-second overview of what premillennialism is, right? Postmillennialism is this, amillennialism is this. Which one are you? And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, even at that point, I had no, I, I knew that I had no idea, you know. And even now, I'm not sure that I have any idea. So uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make light of it, but I, uh, sometimes I just think, my, think of myself as a panmillennialist, you know. It'll all work out. It'll all, it'll all pan out in the end, right? Um, 
No, I, I, uh, I, have, I, I have some thoughts on eschatology, and specifically it's, think about what the goal of eschatology is, right? What, what should, what's it really about? What's the goal of the world? And it's union with Christ. Look in Ephesians, um, chapter 1, I think it's verse 10. It talks about the plan, God's plan is for all things to be united in Christ. That is the point of eschatology. Anything that happens between now and then, I'm not going to say it's not important, but we got to get that all things united in Christ. That needs to be our driver. Everything else is, I'd say details, but it's kind of details. Okay. So anyway, we'll talk about eschatology, I don't know, maybe next year. So which do you think should be studied first of the list that we have up here? Angelology? Yeah. If he's going, uh huh. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Hermodiology, yeah. A lot of times that you're kind of, you know, you look at health and wealth folks, they're going to overemphasize pneumatology. They're going to jump into the doctrines of the Holy Spirit before they understand anything else, right? I think that a lot of times what we do, um, I come from Baptist roots, so I can say this. A lot of times in, Bat- in um, the Baptist side of the house, they jump straight into soteriology um, without really understanding everything else. So I think there's two candidates, right? There's either theology proper or bibliology. And it's like, eh, you know, people are kind of split. Theologians are kind of split on where you start. You start with who God is, but here's the thing. How do you know who God is without the Bible? understanding what the Bible is. But then it's like, how do you understand what the Bible is without understanding who God is? So it's kind of this circular sort of thing. And so you have to, you, you kind of begin with one of those and then you begin to grow out from there, right? Um, and if that bothers you, all worldviews, all substantial ways of thinking are at their very core, at the very foundation, are ultimately circular because you gotta start somewhere. Science begins with a circular argument, okay? And when I say science, I mean natural sciences. Eh, Oh, okay, we need to speed up real quick. Um, Historical theology. Historical theology is the study of the the development and history of Christian doctrine and how it's been understood throughout different periods of church history. So both historical theology and biblical theology are kind of chronological in nature. They, They follow development. But biblical theology is during biblical times. It's, you know, 60, 70 AD and prior. And then historical theology kind of picks up um, with the advent of the church and follows church history and what people believed, right? It's generally in the categories of systematic theology. And like biblical, the- oh, it's chronological in nature. Uh, we'll get. We'll worry about that. Okay, and then um, one of the things that you'll find, and it's actually when we were studying Christology, kind of the development of Christology and the Trinity, um, you know, in the fourth quarter of 2023, we studied a lot of what? Heresies. Because what happens is um, there will be a basic doctrine will be put forth, and everybody's happy and everybody's loving, you know, loving Christ and honoring Christ. And then somebody's got some novel idea. And then the church has to respond to it and figure out, is it true or not? If it's not true, then how do you respond? And if it's not true, it's called a heresy. And then a lot of times they would call a council. And then they would, they would work the, the, uh, the doctrine to account for that heresy. And so a lot of times the development of our doctrines are driven by the various heresies that have popped up over the centuries, okay? And by the way, there's no new heresies. Jehovah's Witnesses, that goes back to Arius in the fourth century, you know? Um, the health and wealth folks and the oneness Pentecostals and all of that, that goes back to um, a movement kind of called um, Montanism back remember when it was second or third century I can remember exactly when it was but we have heresies that just kind of repeat themselves they pop up every every now and again 
The class, okay, so very quickly, we've covered, this is all the stuff that we've covered. You got, most of y'all were here, so I think you already know that. Um, so next up is gonna be soteriology. We'll start with that next week. And we're gonna be looking, kind of doing a bit of a deep dive on John 6. So if you wanna read that ahead of time and be thinking about it, John, John chapter 6, verses 25 to 51. And we're gonna kind of dig into that a little bit and that'll probably take a good part of the class. So any last questions? Okay, cool. Uh, Stuart, do you mind? Father, thank you for uh, revealing yourself through your word, and um, thank you for uh, revealing yourself to the church, and I pray that you would help us to, to recognize the truth that, that you revealed to us and to live differently because of it. Uh, help us to glorify you with, with the uh, application of your word. And, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.